You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Some people just don't know what to do with Paul. Browsing a bookstore will reveal attempts to pit him against Jesus, to make him the real genius behind the traditions we know as Christianity, to render the sayings of Jesus so that they fit into a framework of some of his propositions, to render his career as if he's the deviation from the sayings from Jesus, and all sorts of other festive variations. Then there are writers who try to take Paul seriously on his own terms. Someone living in an occupied Roman Empire in an apocalyptic moment brought on by the death and resurrection of the Messiah of God. Someone trying to follow a Jesus who has shaken the earth and played havoc with the heavens. N.T. Wright's book, Paul, A Biography, is that kind of a book. And Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him back onto the show. Thanks for coming back aboard, Tom. Uh, It's very good to be with you. Thank you. Well, this volume insists from chapter one to the closing page that Paul's life is a Jewish life, and thus we always must take account of the strong link between sin on one hand and foreign hegemony in ancient Jewish uh, imagination. Pardon me. What kinds of historical errors emerge when these two lose their link? And what truths surface when we remember that sin is always connected to foreign occupation? Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you put it that way, as I think that's your construal rather than my summary. Okay, go <laughs> um, ahead then. <laughs> I mean, well, well. I mean, uh, I would probably prefer to talk about evil, because in our present culture, sin has a rather restricted meaning, and people misunderstand what Paul was getting at by it. I mean, for Paul, the primary thing that let's talk about what goes wrong in the human world. What goes wrong in the human world, from a Jewish point of view, is idolatry. People worship that which is not God, and as a result, their humanness malfunctions and ultimately deconstructs. Now, those long, fuzzy words are summarized, if you like, in the word sin, but but they are actually much bigger words than what people normally mean by that. Now, for Paul, uh, sin, the Greek word hamartia, then becomes not just a statement of people doing wrong things, but actually uh, a power, a dark power which gets unleashed. In other words, when people worship non-God things, whether it's Caesar, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whatever it is, those non-God things, idols, um, take the power which we give them by our worship, we humans, so that um, they then exercise, exercise power over us in, in return, as it were. And uh, that, that results in us then behaving and thinking in ways which are destructive, dehumanizing, distorting, and so on. So that whole complex is what Paul means by sin. And as far as Paul was concerned, uh, this was a deep infection which goes right into the heart of human society, so that it isn't just foreign. I mean, the danger of saying it's all about foreign occupation is that then uh, you, the poor, oppressed underdog, are totally innocent, and it's all those damn foreigners that, that, are, that are doing things wrong and beating us up, um, so that we remain innocent and the foreigners get all the blame. And that, of course, is how people often feel when they're oppressed and when they are genuinely being exploited. But I think Paul would say very quickly, um, actually, no, it goes much deeper than that. It goes right through all of us, rather like Alexander Solzhenitsyn said at the end of the Cold War, um, that, that people wanted him to condemn the people who'd been collaborating with the communist regime in the Soviet Union all the time. And he said, listen, the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every one of us in every community. And it's, it's far too simplistic just to say it's that lot over there and, 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 and we, are, uh, we are innocent. Now, of course, the point of your question is that the, the wrongness, the thing that's distorted and gone wrong in human life and human relationships and so on, is much bigger than just every individual doing some wrong things and God being cross about it. It's much more structural, it's much more um, integrated than that. Uh, if I may say so, this is an odd way to, uh, odd place to start the conversation, um, but I, I think I see why you're doing it in that um, from, a, from a, a non-Jewish point of view, um, there might be all sorts of ways into Paul, but from a Jewish point of view, there is this basic thing that the world is out of joint, and the God who made the world has promised to put the world straight again. And that's, that drives the Jewish hope 
that there is one God who has said he's going to sort it all out. And Paul passionately believes that this one God has done it in Jesus, is doing it by the Spirit, and will do it fully and finally um, on the final day. So that is a deeply, deeply Jewish perspective. You don't find that perspective in any other culture. Right. And to add a point that I've learned from reading your books over 20 years, uh, whenever we (laughs) see the promise of the forgiveness of sins in a New Testament text, it's always linked to that idea of God and the land. It's never simply an individual thing where the forgiveness of sins extends to the individual, but the land is still under the pollution and under the occupation and under the curse. But the forgiveness of sins is always holistic. That, that's exactly right, because um, it, the, the whole idea of, of people desperately needing forgiveness is not that they're isolated individuals who've done bad things. I mean, of course, when an individual does bad things, that individual needs and should seek God's forgiveness. But in Jewish literature, going back to places like Jeremiah and the Book of Lamentations, and particularly Isaiah, those famous chapters 40 to 55, the whole idea that God has dealt with your sins means that you went into exile in Babylon because of your sins, and if God has dealt with that and is forgiving you, you get to come out of exile at last. And all the evidence suggests that the many, many Jews of Jesus' day and Paul's day, who saw the exile, as Daniel uh, Daniel 9 puts it, as extending for nearly half a millennium, so that even though some of them had come back from Babylon, the real exile, the deep spiritual disengagement and political enslavement was carrying on. So that, yeah, you're absolutely right. So forgiveness of sins is a, is a massive, mega, um, whole society thing and has to do with God realigning, putting straight again, not only Israel but the world. And that's what they believed happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Very good. And another connection to that you know, national level is that the zeal that you talk about in this book uh, really has that national connection. And I mean, that's that's what struck me about your story of Saul before the Damascus Road encounter uh, is that Paul is a man or Saul, pardon me, is a man of zeal. And you connect that to the story of Phinehas. So for our listeners who haven't read Judges lately, tell the story of Phinehas. (laughs) Uh, excuse me, it's not Judges, it's the Book of Numbers. <laughs> oh, it's Numbers, you're right. My apologies. Numbers, yeah. Okay. Um, well, it, 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 see, the, the connection is this. One of Paul's most famous Old Testament quotations is when he quotes um, Genesis 15, and he says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, of course, that's been a famous saying in subsequent Christian theology for all sorts of good reasons, but it's not the only place that that phrase, reckoned to him as righteousness, occurs. The other place is um, in Psalm 106, when it's talking about Phineas, and uh, in just a short passage. Psalm 106 is going right through a long history of all the bad things that happened in the wilderness and so on. Uh, and, and it summarizes the story which is told in the book of Numbers when uh, the, the, the Midianite women are sent in to try to ensnare the Israelite men to, to lure them away from allegiance to Yahweh their God in order to prevent them taking over the promised land and coming through the territory um, that, uh, that, that they're wanting to occupy. And so uh, th- this, this is, is pretty devastating. And Phineas is the one, a young priest is the one who takes a spear and goes to a tent where there's an Israelite man and a Moabite woman, and he kills them both with one spear thrust. Um, it's, and it's, it's a classic sort of text of the, the hero doing a bit of redemptive violence. And in the book of Numbers, it says uh, that God therefore made a covenant with Phineas that he and his descendants would be perpetual priests. But the way that that is summed up in Psalm 106 is that Phineas uh, stood up and interposed, stopped this wretched moral rot and the plague that went with it, and it says, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness to all generations. So that this phrase, reckoned as righteousness, we can see that resonating. Phineas is the archetypal zealous man in the Old Testament. Phineas and Elijah are the two who do redemptive violence, zeal in the Old Testament. 
And uh, Paul describes himself later, um, looking back in Galatians 1, as being consumed with this extreme zeal. And we know from lots of Jewish sources that that meant he was doing the Phineas thing or the Elijah thing. So the connection in my mind, and I think in Paul's mind, is that he was reliving the Phineas story. Uh, Israel is corrupting itself by going and believing in this crucified Messiah. What a crazy idea. Somebody has to get out there and do stuff. And that's what Saul was doing. He wanted to be the new Phineas. And I think he was living with that story, hammering in his head, and he knew the the prophecies and the psalm and so on. And then when he was struck by the gospel of Jesus, by the revelation of Jesus himself, then he is rethinking the whole tradition. And the passage from Genesis, which uses that same phrase, becomes extremely important to him. And I think for Paul, there's this transition that he was wanting to be the new Phineas, and instead he turns out to be the one who is proclaiming that the covenant with Abraham has been fulfilled, Mm -hmm. and that it is now uh, reckoned as righteousness to all those who believe. Now, I hate to do this, and we're only going to take a minute with it before we turn back to your book, but my listeners are going to ask if I don't, um, how does this focus on zeal in the life of Paul relate to the claims that Reza Aslan makes in his book, Zealot? I mean, it's a very different universe, but that noun is going to haunt me if I don't ask you about it. Yeah, okay. Um, I've only skim-read that book. Um, I I read in... I read enough of the first chapter or two to realize that this is not a serious piece of either history or theology. And my life is so busy. I'm so, I've got, at any moment, I've got 10 or 15 books that I urgently need to read. <laughs> that if, 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 I mean, quite seriously, that if I, you know, and I'm an old man now, I'm nearly 70. If I decide that actually I shouldn't spend a day reading a particular book, I've got better things. I'm afraid that those decisions have to be made. But Reza Aslan, um, uh, I, I don't even know very much about him, just what, what little people have told me. But uh, clearly he is not somebody who, who's a serious scholar. To be, And I'm not saying this because I'm a Christian and he's not, or any, any, anything like that, or he was and isn't. Or I, I can't even remember the detail of that. It's just that I know um, what, what real history looks like when I read it, and, and that's not what he's offering. Okay. Back to your book. Now, when you narrate that moment when Saul of Tarsus sees that blinding light on the road and addresses that voice that he hears as Lord, in your words, uh, he realizes that, quote, Jesus had done what one God had promised to do himself in person, close quote. Now, I've I've interviewed uh, Richard Hayes and Daniel Kirk recently about their Jesus books, and, you Mm -hmm. know, I can't help but pose these questions about God's presence in Jesus. So here it goes. Writing as Paul's biographer, how does Paul come to envision that relationship between the one God who made heavens and earth and the man Jesus of Nazareth executed outside Jerusalem? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, I think Paul goes back again and again, particularly to passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on, uh, lots of others as well, but those perhaps particularly, uh, which are full of promises about what God himself is going to do. Ezekiel 34, God says, I myself, I will come and be the shepherd of the sheep and look after them and save them, etc., etc. And in Isaiah particularly, uh, who would have thought that he was the arm of the Lord? The whole point of the gospel, the Evangelion, in Isaiah 52, verses 7 to 12, is that this is Yahweh coming back in person. The Lord has bared his holy arm. God has rolled up his sleeve to come and do for his people in the world what nobody else could do. And in Isaiah 45, he says, uh, I, I've done this alone. It's just me. I will not share my glory with anyone else. And yet that whole passage in Isaiah 40 to 55, which is the most fiercely um, sustainedly monotheistic passage, if you like, in the whole Old Testament, um, nevertheless has at the heart of it a picture of the servant who uh, appears astonishingly to be doing the redemptive work which Yahweh, throughout the whole poem, and it is one long sustained poem, Yahweh says he's going to do it himself. And so somehow we have to say that already within Isaiah, there is this to and fro between Yahweh and the servant. And of course, it's made explicit in Isaiah 42 and elsewhere that Yahweh puts his own spirit upon his servant so that the servant will bring God's justice 
to the nations and, and so on and so forth. And then this goes into the whole discussion of the, four, the so-called fourth seven song, 52, 13 to 53, 12. Um, but that's seen within the larger context of Isaiah as a whole. And I think Paul, who refers to those passages a lot, and if you read my book, you'll know Isaiah 49, uh, the third servant song, is one of Paul's all-time favorite passages. It's mm-hmm. almost an obsession with him. He, he quotes it and refers to it and alludes to it all the time. Um, and I, I think Paul, uh, having met Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, having realized that in Jesus' death and resurrection, something had happened which must mean that this was Israel's God coming back in person to redeem the world. This doesn't then strike him as, oh my goodness, I've got to give up all that I've ever read in the scriptures. It's, wow, this now explains that extraordinary paradox which runs right through scriptures and particularly a book like Isaiah. So, um, as you would detect, uh, if there is a debate going on between Kirk and Hayes, then I'm I'm with Hayes on this one, and not just because he's an old friend of mine. <laughs> I just, uh, I mean, we disagree about other things, but not this. Um, it seems to me that there is a profound, what you might call proto-Trinitarian view. Now, of course, the the the, the grain of truth in what Daniel Kirk is saying, um, I read his book extremely carefully when it came out, what, a year or two ago, whenever it was, um, mm-hmm. it, it is, is that uh, part of the same point is that in the Old Testament, the role given to humanity, to humans, from the creation of humans in God's image in Genesis 1, through the uh, emphatic reassertion of that in Psalm 8, right through to passages like Daniel 7, the Son of Man, uh, and so on. This is a way of saying that from the beginning, the God who created the world created a creature called humanity, whatever, uh, in order that he the one God could work in the world through human beings. And particularly, many of us, this is not original to me at all, many of us have said that this indicates retrospectively that Genesis has to be read Christologically, that the God who made the world made it like this with humans as his image bearers in order that he could appropriately come to take charge of his world from within himself by becoming human. In other words, the appropriateness of the incarnation and the full emphasis on the role of humans, which Daniel Kirk really does emphasize. I haven't actually thought about Daniel Kirk's book for the last six months at least, because I've been working on quite a lot of things, but I recall reading it very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a perfectly valid emphasis, which needs to be factored in. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a fully divine Christology as well. It's just that this is part of the glory and, and surprise, in a sense, of what the image turns out to be all about. Very good, very good. Well, I have to admit, this book made me think about the brief mention of Paul's journey to Arabia more than I've ever thought about it before. Ah, Uh, ah, You know, I I had professors tell me that, you know, the book of Acts doesn't mention it, but beyond that, didn't give it much thought. You connect it to Elijah. Tell our listeners about that. Well, uh, that was a funny moment. I I recall this was about 20 years ago. um, I was reading um, uh, First Kings one morning in my own private reading, and uh, I came upon the passage, and it's the story of Elijah after the victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Um, Ahab, the king, threatens him because he's killed his own his prophets of Baal. Elijah runs away. He runs to uh, Horeb or Sinai, uh, the mountain of God in Arabia. Um, and it's as though he's he's going there to hand in his commission to say, look, I've done the best I can, and they and it still hasn't worked, and they're still out to get me. Um, I, I I quit. That's that's what he's basically doing. I alone am left. And um, and God says to him, it's that passage, you know, where he has the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake and the wind, uh, and then the still small voice, or however you translate it. And mm-hmm. what God says to Elijah is go and return again to Damascus and anoint so-and-so to be king, anoint so-and-so to be prophet. Um, And it was that phrase, go return again to Damascus. And I remember I was reading this, I think, in the Septuagint, in the Greek Septuagint, and I thought, wait a minute, that's a very familiar phrase. 
that's more or less exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Hmm. And I looked up Galatians chapter 1, and it's not exactly word for word, but it's the same sentiment that I returned again to Damascus. Where has he just been? To Arabia. Well, what does he mean by Arabia? That's a moot point at the moment. But I thought, wait a minute, how could, why would Paul be channeling Elijah at that moment? So I go back again in the Septuagint, and of course what Elijah says to God is, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. Well, jealous is one way of putting it. The Greek is zelon et zeloka, that is, with zeal I have been zealous for the Lord of hosts. So I thought, oh my goodness, of course, Elijah and Phineas are the models of zeal. What does Paul say in Galatians 1? I outstripped all my others of my, of my time because I was perisoteros zelotes hupakon. I was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It's a QED. Paul is channeling Elijah. Paul, having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, realizes he's been going in the wrong direction with all this violence. And like Elijah, having killed the prophets of Baal, he goes off to do business with the God of Israel. And I think the obvious place he goes is Sinai, uh, which is, as he says later on in Galatians, Sinai is a mountain in Arabia. Um, And I think he goes to say to God, okay, I thought I'd got this sussed. I thought I was doing your will. I was being Mr. Elijah Mark II. Uh, Now what are you going to do? And I think then his commission, very like, not exactly like, but very like Elijah. Elijah is told, go back to Damascus and anoint so-and-so to be king and -and so-and-so to be prophet. Paul is told, go back to to Damascus and announce my anointed one. In Mm. other words, announce Jesus as the true anointed king, which is precisely what he does. So reading between the lines, but, you know, Paul knew his Old Testament absolutely like the back of his hand. Um, I can quote the odd line here and there. Paul had the whole thing zinging in his head. When he writes like that, this is not an accident. He is channeling this whole story and saying that this is where I was in the story. That's how zeal worked. And God stopped me in my tracks and said, no, you are now to be uh, the Messiah announcer, the one who announces the anointed one. And I, I, I find that very compelling. And I find it fits beautifully with the larger picture that I see of the sheer personality of this man, Paul. Mm-hmm. There's a... I guess a discussion of terminology, for lack of a better term, that I really think is valuable here. Uh, because when we moderns think of Jews, certainly the Shoah can't be far from our first thought. But beyond that, I mean, our tendency is to think of Judaism as a religion, Jewish as one ethnicity among many. You focus instead on theological matters when you discuss this division between Jew and ethni or gentile however you want to say it in paul's day so talk about what that division looks like in paul's day as opposed to ours yeah yeah it's 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 very difficult because we do you're absolutely right and i think actually particularly in europe and america people think of the jews and we have a sort of mental image of the Jews. You know, I, I grew up near Newcastle on Tyne, where there was a large Jewish community, and you sort of go past a district, and that's where the Jews live, and they go to their schools, and so on and so forth. And and uh, it really, you know, we have to we have to get rid of so much of that. Okay, there were some towns, perhaps Tarsus, where Paul came from, Saul came from, where there was a Jewish quarter, like there was a Jewish quarter in Damascus. When Paul goes to Damascus, um, the Jewish quarter just on the south side of Straight Street. Straight Street runs east-west, and the Jewish quarter was just below it on the map. Um, that, that, uh, that, so there were places where you could look and say, well, the Jews live there. But it, it, the, the feeling of that was not like we have today. Um, and of course, there were Jews who'd come back from exile in Babylon, but there were many Jews who'd stayed, and there were many other Jews who were scattered all over the place. Um, so, uh, so in terms of geography, they were all over the place. But the word Judaism, uh, which to us just means a religion, and we hear that in an 18th century sense of religion, which is so misleading for the first century. The word Judaismos in the Greek does not describe what we would mean by a religion. It describes the activity of propagating the Jewish way of life, i.e. encouraging Jews who are not very observant 
and be more observant to put on the defilin, to say the prayers, to attend the, the synagogue and to, uh, to do the stuff at the festivals and to keep the Sabbath properly and to do all that stuff. So when Paul says I advanced in Judaism, it doesn't just mean I became even more religious. I went to synagogue even more than anyone else. It means I, I was actually taking the fight to the enemy. I was going out to the places where um, people of Jewish ethnicity were not keeping up the traditions. And I was persuading them, nay, forcing them, uh, actually to come into line. This is part of what the extreme Pharisees, like the young Saul of Tarsus, were all about. I, I was once stopped on the streets of New York. There was a big Jewish parade going on. I wanted to cross the street. And, and a delightful young man, Jewish man, came up to me and asked me if I was Jewish. And I muttered something about probably not in the sense that you mean why. And it was clear that he was wanting me to put on um, the, the things which go with um, with prayer, the, the tefillin and so on, in order to be a praying Jew rather than a non-praying Jew. And it, it's that kind of activity which um, in the first century Saul was engaging in. And of course, yes, we look back over 2,000 years of a lot of mess and muddle, and we Christians have an enormous amount to be penitent for. But that doesn't mean that we should say, oh, well, let's, let's give up this whole thing. What we have to remind ourselves, and this is, I think I do emphasize this the book is that we easily collapse these discussions into comparative religion christianity versus judaism that's not what's going on in the first century at all what's going on in the first century is the question of messianic eschatology is jesus of nazareth god's messiah or isn't he? Because if he is, every Jew who knew anything at all knew that if the Messiah has shown up, you've got to get into line. You can't say, oh, well, that's nice. There's a Messiah. Fine. If, if somebody wants to follow him, that, that's great. But actually, I'll stay at home. Thank you. No. If the Messiah has come, this means God is redefining the whole cosmos around him, not just Israel, not just the Gentiles. But God is redefining the whole cosmos around this person. Therefore, of course, you've got to get into line. So, so Paul goes from being this zealous Judaismos man to being, in a very different sense, the zealous Messiah man. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this as a follow-up. I mean, would it be something analogous to what the word communist meant in the 19th century? Not merely someone who had a private thought about money and economics, but someone who was propagating and organizing and instigating and, you know, causing trouble generally in the streets. Is that the kind of yes. distinction we're uh, looking sorry. at? Sorry. Just just make this clear for me. You say in the 19th century? Yeah, yeah. You, that, yeah, I mean... When, I, when you, when, are you distinguishing that from the 20th century? And that's, oh, that's I, I, just, I just had in mind the Communist Manifesto. Oh, okay. Okay, going right back to Marx and Engels. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm I'm not a not a historian of Marxism, but but I mean, right the way through, um, yes, I suppose I suppose that's right, and it would continue then into the 20th century. And certainly, when I was young, in in the 50s and mm -hmm. 60s, um, there, there were there were plenty of communists in Britain, some of whom were simply communists in in their thinking. That, that if you asked them, they'd say, "Well, actually, I'm a communist. I'm going to vote communist in the next election," but they weren't actually doing anything about it, but there were plenty of others who were doing stuff about it, mm -hmm. who were out on the street active, actively agitating, organizing strikes. Uh, that all reached its height in the 1980s with Arthur Scargill leading the miners' strike. That there was they were serious communists who wanted to bring down the elected government in order to have a socialist revolution, and then they had persuaded themselves rhetorically that this was actually on the cards and this was how to do it. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely, it, it is. It is, and I guess many many movements have a sort of uh, active wing and then a more going along with it, if you ask me, sort of wing. And, mm. and uh, in, certainly in the first century, it was like that. There were whole sorts of shades of opinion. Okay. And honestly, I probably picked uh, 1848 just because that was the year of the European revolutions yeah. and the Communist Manifesto. Oh, but we can move oh, on to no, another. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Now, one connection, again, I, you know, one thing I really appreciated about this book is that several theological data that were just kind of floating alone in my mind get connected in this book. And one of those connections is between the Judaizers, as I was taught them, that were Paul's uh, opponents uh. in Galatians, and then the Jewish war going on in Palestine. I never thought about those two things as being connected. You connect them in this book. What's the connection? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, uh, of course, at the time Paul is writing Galatians, there isn't a war going on, but um, things were tense already. If you read Mm -hmm. Josephus, people often say to me, Tom, uh, you you talk about the Second Temple period, what should I read to to get to know that period? And I say, just get yourself a good modern translation of Josephus and read it as if it was a novel, and you'll see all these connections. Because Josephus, he's a funny old stick, but he was there, he knew people, he, he was around, he understood how that world worked. So it goes like this. If you're in southern Turkey, uh, the, the Galatia, and you know people argue about which Galatia we're talking about, but it's in central or southern Turkey, and it's a major area of Roman influence, um, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, is actually called New Rome. It's a colony. They're building buildings so that it looks like Rome and feels like Rome, and people who live there, it's as though you were in Rome you know, um, almost more Roman than Rome. And then the other towns, Derby and Lystra and Iconium, um, uh, that string of towns to the east of Pisidian Antioch, east and a bit south that Paul travels in in Acts 13 and 14. These are major centers of Roman influence. Now, here's the deal. The Romans had struck a deal with the Jews a generation or so before, around the time of Julius Caesar, that though everybody else had to worship the Roman gods, the Romans had realized the Jews weren't ever going to do that. They, they would die, rather. So that the deal is that the Jews will pray to their own god, but they will pray for uh, Rome and its leaders, etc. But they'll pray to their own god. Okay, everybody knows that happens. Some may resent it, but that's that's the state of play. Then suddenly, what happens is you get uh, Paul coming along, Paul and Barnabas, and they're talking about Jesus. And Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's God's Messiah. And people get converted. They come into line. The Spirit works in their hearts. All sorts of things are happening. And they stop worshipping the idols, because that's the number one thing. You don't worship idols anymore. You're worshipping a living God, he says in First Thessalonians 1. And so these Christians, as we would call them with hindsight, they are now doing what only Jews were allowed to do, which is not worshipping the official state gods and, and any other gods and goddesses. And everybody notices, you know, in small towns, everybody knows everybody else's business. Um, you notice if your neighbors are not turning up to the big party, to the big festival, to the to the official state games. They're staying home there. What are they doing? Why aren't they here? Oh, they've started taking up. So then the officials get cross. Who do you think you are? Oh, well, we are the children of Abraham because we have believed in Jesus as Messiah. And this man, Paul, tells us that means we're part of the family that tracks back all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the, the, the civic leaders go to the Jewish authorities in the local town. They say, who are these people? They cl- oh, we don't know. They're, don't ask us. Nothing to do with us. And so the state officials then say, okay, sort this out. You're all dead meat because this is, this is bad news. You shouldn't be allowing this to happen. Now, this is much, much, much more complicated at one level than how we were all taught Galatians. We were all taught uh, Galatians yeah. that, that, that so, some people thought you had to save yourself by doing moral good deeds, and Paul says, no, you don't. And that, that's kind of easy and totally anachronistic. Um, but it may be more complicated, but it actually comes up in three dimensions. This is about real communities struggling with real issues. And so then, naturally, there's a lot of pressure that the Jewish communities will put pressure on Jewish Jesus follows, Jewish Christians, if you like, to say, please, please, please tell those funny Gentile friends of yours to get themselves circumcised so that we can tell the authorities, yeah, yeah, they're all Jews, so calm down, it's okay. And so there's pressure, there's social, cultural, perhaps even violent pressure. You must get circumcised because otherwise, you know, who do you think you are to hold the rest of us to ransom kind of thing? And so, but Paul sees to the heart of that, that that would be saying, if you get circumcised, you don't need a crucified Messiah. You've got a crucified Messiah, therefore you are okay as you are. A Gentile Jesus believer is a full member of of Abraham's family. Now, all this is going on at a time when everybody knows that things are tense just a few miles away in uh, the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, Galilee, and environs, and that if things get played wrong, 
then the balloon may go up because Caligula had had the incident with the statue. Fortunately, Caligula uh, was assassinated and, and the statue did not get put up in Jerusalem. But everybody knows this could happen again. The Romans could come in and the Jews could be in serious trouble. And anything like this stirring stuff up, if word gets back to Rome, all that the Roman emperor will hear is, um, oh, well, those Jews, they're so troublesome. Let's deal with them once and for all. And of course, 20 years later, after the writing of Galatians, that is precisely what happened in the late 60s. Um, the Romans finally come in and do what they did very efficiently, and Jerusalem falls. And that's, you know, the big disaster. So I, I think we have to read all of Paul in this multi-layered, historically, politically, culturally sensitive way. And let me say, because some of your listeners may be anxious about this, this doesn't mean that the theology doesn't matter. It means that the theology, too, has to be three-dimensional. It's about a God who is present and does stuff and wants people to change their characters and wants new communities, spirit-filled communities, to be who they're meant to be. So the theology is actually strengthened by this. It isn't swapping theology for politics, as some, some people have wrongly suggested. It's putting the theology in its real-life context. Well, and in fact, I mean, the joining of Jews and Gentiles, as this book tells the story and your other books as well, uh, it stands as a sort of alternative, a rival, uh, you know, a new way to see the place where heaven and earth join together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course, you see that most clearly in the letter to the Ephesians. And I sometimes think mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why liberal Protestants in Germany and elsewhere have tried to say that Paul didn't write Ephesians, because it's so emphatic on exactly this point, that Ephesians 2, uh, really from verse 11 right the way through to, to the end of the chapter, verse 22, Ephesians 2 is all about the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, constituting a single new humanity and therefore a single new temple where God dwells by the Spirit. And if you know anything about Jewish temple theology, that's about the strongest and most striking thing you could say about any community. You are the temple of the living God. And you know, uh, Something which in my old age is coming clearer and clearer to me, um, the whole point of the gospel is not about us getting to heaven. It's about the God of heaven coming to dwell on earth. That's how the book ends. Revelation ends with um, uh, the dwelling of God is with humans. This is the goal of the whole thing. The temple, Solomon's temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness, is an advance foretaste of this. And the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit is the reality to which the Old Testament temple promise and architecture is, is, is pointing. That is so important, and Paul's right there on the cusp of it. Mm -hmm. I want to turn to another episode that you know a lot of people quote, but, I, but your reading I hadn't encountered before, and that's Acts 17 in Athens. Uh, oh, yeah. As you tell the story, Paul in Athens is no modern missionary talking to the locals, much less a wandering philosopher pondering abstract verities. But this is a man on trial, uh, as much yeah, as he yeah, was yeah, in yeah, Ephesus yeah, and yeah. Rome later. So yeah, yeah. Con convince our yeah. listeners they might be skeptical. Well, it's a funny thing. I was just reading earlier this evening because I'm actually in the middle of doing the Gifford lectures in Aberdeen University. I did the first one yesterday. I'm doing the second one tomorrow and on from there, which is great fun. And if anyone wants to look them up, go to the Aberdeen University website and put in Gifford and you'll see. Um, but I was just rereading James Barr's Gifford lectures from 1991. And he has a whole chapter on what Paul said on the Areopagus in Acts 17. And he treats the whole thing as a kind of exercise in apologetics and he's debating with Karl Barth and others as to what this means and is it really natural theology or whatever and I'm thinking as I'm reading it well you know it's quite a nice interesting discussion but he's completely missing the point the Areopagus never was a debating society the debates take place down in the forum Paul had already done that the Areopagus, nor was it a great, like a great sort of cathedral where you'd go and, and, and make, your, make your sermon. Uh, the Areopagus is the highest court in the land. What's more, it's a court that claimed to have been founded by Apollo himself 
it's there in, in um, Aeschylus's plays, uh, the, the founding of the court of the Areopagus, in order to do the most ultimate justice so that Athens will have the place where divine justice happens. And so they drag Paul to the Areopagus because they've heard him talking about Jesus and anastasis, which means resurrection, and they think, uh-oh, he's trying to introduce some foreign divinities into our culture. Now, it doesn't take much classical knowledge to see what that means. Socrates, five centuries mm-hmm. before, had been put to death for corrupting the young and preaching foreign divinities. So there's two charges. Paul is, is on trial for one of them. And so Paul's apologia, and you know, okay, it is apologetics in that sense. He's explaining very sophisticatedly that actually what he's doing is filling in a gap that the Athenians themselves had left open. But in fact, he, what he's then doing is launching a major attack on their major cultural symbols. I don't know, have you ever been to Athens? Have you stood on the Areopagus? As if you stand on the Areopagus, um, you can see just across the valley this extraordinary thing called uh, the Acropolis, where you have the Parthenon, you have the Temple of Nike, you have all sorts of other amazing buildings, some of the finest architecture the whole world has ever known. And Paul says um, they're a category mistake because God does not live in houses made with hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, but, so it, it's, he's taking the fight to the enemy and he gets away with it. And and so when they say, we'll hear you again about this, um, this is not saying, let's have another evangelistic rally. Um, It's saying, okay, okay, you've got off. You've convinced us that you're not corrupting the young. You're not actually preaching foreign divinities in any dangerous way. um, But maybe we'll hear you again. Maybe we won't kind of thing. So I think it's a very, very clever piece of speaking by Paul, a very clever piece of writing by Luke, but it's not doing the kind of evangelistic apologetic that people have often imagined. Mm -hmm. Well, that that parallel with Socrates is fascinating because uh, in his Apologia, you know, the Platonic Dialogue by that name, you know, one of his prime uh, modes of defense is precisely to note the places in which, you know, the accusations of uh, Miletus and the other sophists are logically inconsistent. It seems like by this reading... That's exactly what Paul's doing. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. And and you're reminding me I should I should go back and reread that stuff. The trouble is, <laughs> I mean, I, I I did all the classical texts when I was at school and college, and and so I I kind of know them um, sort of. And then when I go back, I think, oh yeah, I've forgotten that bit because it's actually forty years since I read it. Well, but, uh, um, yeah. Well, one of my blessings really, is really I, I I teach them to eighteen year olds every school year, so. Oh, right. They are Wonderful. they are in my Wonderful. mind, yes, yes. Oh, lucky you! That's great. Well, I, well, I, well, I do enjoy opportunities to tweak the noses of those who insist on biblical studies orthodoxies. So I want to ask you to make the case, <laughs> as you do in this book, for the Pauline authorship of Ephesians and Colossians. You've mentioned it in passing already, but in your mind, yeah. what makes New Testament studies professors so insistent that Paul did not write them? And what positive argument oh. do you present to the contrary? This is this is basically one of those traditions that was started in the middle of the 19th century and has continued, particularly in Germany and America, um, not so much elsewhere. You won't find Italian scholars, French scholars, Greek scholars, Russian scholars, African scholars. You, know, you can run run around the world, and, and British scholars are more or less divided on this. Um, it's mostly Germany and America, and obviously if you're in Germany or America, it may seem as though everybody says this, <laughs> but what it is is then a tradition which means that if you're writing a PhD, you have to say in the foreword, uh, of course I do not assume the Pauline authorship, because otherwise you're frightened that some snarky examiner is going to say, oh, this young person doesn't know the, the first ABC of, of historical critical method. And I just, I just think it's one of these traditions which goes on, and uh, as Bob, Bob Morgan, who certainly doesn't believe in the Pauline authorship of Ephesians, but he says in his book, The Nature of New Testament Theology, that actually all the chess pieces should get put back on the board at the end of each generation and we should start again. I think he's absolutely right. 
because people come to these things with presuppositions about what, what our Paul, our hero Paul is like. And it really comes from a reading of Paul which was focused on, on a 19th century understanding of justification by faith within a, a, a German liberal Protestant tradition, the tradition exemplified in Ferdinand Christian Bauer um, uh, 150 years ago or so in Tübingen. And if if you take that reading of justification, you actually not only lose Ephesians and Colossians, you lose Romans 9 to 11, you lose um, Second Thessalonians, certainly. And that's another irony, because Second Thessalonians is deeply apocalyptic. We now have a whole move that talks about apocalyptic Paul, and they still don't like Second Thessalonians, which mm-hmm. they should if they believed in apocalyptic. And it's simply because the, the, the tradition which American scholarship has bought said, oh dear, no, we don't, we don't have Second Thessalonians. It doesn't fit that picture of Paul. So I would say, um, let's start with Colossians. Philemon, I think almost everybody accepts, is is Pauline, the little letter to Philemon. And Philemon um, has Paul in prison saying to Philemon, who lives in Colossae, um, I'm coming to see you as soon as I get out, so get a guest room ready for me, which makes me think, that this is written from Ephesus rather than from either Rome or Caesarea, mm-hmm. uh, because in either of those, if Paul gets out, he's not going to come straight to a, a little town in upcountry Turkey. Um, but then Colossians really does look as though it's a companion piece to Philemon, and a lot of people have argued that. Um, again, the objection to Colossians is is particularly people who are frightened of the high Christology of chapter 1, uh, which is very, very high Christology. So if you think that Paul has a low Christology, and that high Christology only comes in um, the end of the century, then naturally you reject Colossians. But that's that's frankly silly, and has been demonstrated to be wrong again and again in the last 30 or 40 years. But these traditions die hard, and it's hard to uproot them, because they get just passed on from one person to the next. And, you know, uh, a lot of people go to teach New Testament in a college who probably have never done any fresh research for themselves on Ephesians and Colossians, but they heard this when they were being taught so they pass it on and it gets passed on and that's how that's how the thing happens. I was fortunate in that respect in that the very first biblical commentary I ever wrote was a Tyndale commentary on Colossians and I had to dive down deep into it and say, oh my goodness, you know, what do I really think about this? And I changed my mind about a great many things, including the location and including the dating. Um, so um, I was quite prepared to change my mind about all sorts of things, but the more I went on, the more I just thought, well, of course it's Paul. But if Colossians is Pauline, then Ephesians again is clearly a companion piece. And Ephesians reads more like a circular, which makes sense if it's written from prison in Ephesus to churches in the Ephesus area. And Paul, we know that's going on because at the end of Colossians, Paul says, when you've uh, read my letter, make sure you read the one that I've sent to Laodicea. Well, hang on, there's another circular coming around at the same time or around the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is like, I should say, if people are not used to doing ancient history, uh, as obviously you are, but a lot of you hearers may not be, um, then people need to be reminded that in ancient history, there are very few fixed points. We are constantly making hypotheses about likelihoods. And, and my point is that the reason for dismissing Ephesians and Colossians is, as far as I can see, mostly, not entirely, mostly theological prejudice. The reason for accepting them is mostly careful step-by-step historical argument very good i want to talk about the end of paul's career uh by way of second corinthians uh because i was was fascinated in your reading of uh paul's catalog of sufferings there uh yeah you make the case that you know this is a subversion of the roman cursus honorum and replacing it with a new genre the pauline cursus pudorum so talk about the course of shame that, that's not my idea. Somebody else um, had a, had a, has a whole book on on Philippians two as cursus pudorum, but okay. then also the two. The, but so, but it's, uh, okay, if you're a Roman uh, citizen on the way up, as it were, socially, you keep a list rather like what academics do. You know, I have on my computer a curriculum vitae in case I'm doing lectures somewhere and they say send us your CV so that we can introduce you properly, and I just update it from time to time, and that's the sort of thing we academics do but in 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 the roman world it was it was huge and you you would write out your achievements you'd have them carved on stone tablets or if your name was augustus you'd have it carved in marble and put all around the emperor 
emperor. This is, this is my list of achievements. And for many, this would include the public offices you'd held, the time when you were consul, the time when you led an army into battle. And if you'd been in, been in the army, then there were certain military honors that you might get as well. And my case in 2 Corinthians 11, and I, I got this originally from that very fine ancient historian, Edwin Judge, an Australian ancient historian who's still alive in Sydney. He's an old man, must be in his 90s now. He's a wonderful, wonderful historian, an expert on the age of Augustus. But he pointed out to me many years ago that Paul is caricaturing that Roman self-advertisement, the Roman boasting list, because he boasts of all the wrong things. I've been in jail. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. I've been beaten up. And the climax of it all is that when the going got tough, I was the first one over the wall running away, which is a parody of the Roman military claim that I was the first one over the wall attacking the city, invading the city. And so um, I think it's very funny. And I think Paul's audience must have realized that at this point in the letter, he's absolutely got them by the collar and is just looking at them and saying, now, come on, this is what power is really all about. My power is made perfect in weakness. Get used to it, guys. And he's made the point uh, rhetorically. And it's, it's doubly funny because both the Corinthian letters are about Paul saying uh, that human rhetoric isn't where it's at, that we apostles simply have to tell the truth by open statement of what's going on and we don't dress it up in flowery language. But then when push comes to shove, just to tease them, he can show that he can do the flowery language too, but to make his point rather than theirs. So I, I think I think 2 Corinthians is a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing, all the more so because obviously it comes out of this time of intense pain and struggle, when, as he says, at one point he despaired of life itself. You know, if, if somebody came to me pastorally and said, that he was in despair of life itself, I think, oh my goodness, uh, this is above my pay grade. I need to call in a psychiatrist or somebody to help. Um, it's certainly a major pastoral crisis. And that's where Paul has been. And he comes out of that with this statement of what the gospel is all about, the upending of human power and prestige. Anyway. Very good. Towards the end of this volume, you delineate a range of social revolutions that unfold as Paul's vision of a Messiah-transformed world grips the Roman Empire. Uh, we don't have to go through the entire account. It's pretty extensive. <laughs> but tell our listeners about some of the fallout from these new Jesus communities in a world that had known many gods, but never the one God and one Lord whom Paul proclaimed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because it's hard for us to imagine just what these communities were supposed to be like. I, I, I concocted a phrase in the lecture I gave last night where I said that, you know, people think of Paul as starting a religion or a religious movement. But for us, religion doesn't mean what Paul was doing. Paul was establishing little cells, little groups of people who were worship-based, ethically rigorous, uh, they, they, they were egalitarian, they were humanitarian, and they were fictive kinship groups. Now, that's a lot of complicated language, but that's what Paul meant by church. These people who, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, men, women, all getting together on equal terms as though they're absolutely members of the same family, looking out for one another, looking after one another, behaving in this new human way. So without the Jewish markers of circumcision, the food laws and the Sabbath, but with quite strict, um, what we would call ethical rules, um, obviously marriage and sexual behavior is very clear. Paul sees that as enhanced because this is new creation. This is back to Genesis 1 and 2, as Jesus says, in Mark 10, uh, Paul is Paul is very clear about that. So that these are that these communities are formed out of worshiping and invoking the one God in and through the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. It's just Trinitarian worship forming communities now. As a result, Paul sees these communities as, as he says in Galatians, doing good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Um, and uh, this comes out in several of the letters, particularly for some odd reason, I don't know why, in Titus, 
the idea of being zealous for good works, that the Christians are to be known in their local communities as the sort of people you'd like to have, to have living next to you. you know, that They are not to be standoffish. They are to be the sort of people who will always be there when you need them, who will be there to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as he says in Romans 12. Um, so that they are to, to care for one another, but not as a ghetto uh, looking down their noses at the rest of the world. Their care for one another must always be flowing over into care for the poor and anyone who's in need of any sort in the wider community. And that that vision of an outward-looking new kind of human community is so radical that it's hard for us even to hold it in our heads for five minutes. And we tend to translate it into other sort of radicalisms that we, that we ourselves like and prefer. But it, it, is, it is truly striking. And uh, we, we need to think about that a lot more than we do. Well, it's interesting. I, I've recently discovered the French historian of philosophy, Pierre Hadot, and he makes the mm-hmm. argument that, you know, ancient philosophical communities were a lot more holistic than we imagine as well. And he eventually comes around to the argument that, you know, it was a natural for Christian confession and, you know, Greek philosophy to come together because they were both, you know, in the sense that you just described, uh, communities of radically new ways of life. So, um, yeah, the, well, they, they, they were and they weren't. Have you read Kevin Rowe's recent book? Um, Kevin teaches in, in Duke Divinity School alongside Richard Hayes and others. And uh, uh, I'm trying, struggling to remember the name of the book. I think it's One True Life. And okay. it's a study in, Sto- in Stoicism and early Christianity. And he goes through particular characters like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and so on. Mm-hmm. Rather, actually, as I do in the chapter on philosophy in, in Paul and the Faithfulness of God. And then he goes through particular early Christian writers from the first and second centuries, and he compares and contrasts on exactly this point that there are similarities, that there are lots of similarities, of course there are, but there are lots and lots of differences as well. And if you're a Stoic, um, then this is, it's not just ideas you've got in your head. As you said before about communism, it commits you to a whole way of life. Fine, yes, good. Mm -hmm. Um, Ditto with the early Christians. It's an entire way of life. And then when you put Stoics and Christians side by side, well, there are some overlaps. Um, You know, my wife took a train today from Aberdeen to Bristol. For some of that journey, she will have been on the same track as if you were going from Inverness to London. London. But uh, that's maybe sort of 100 miles of track, which would be the same track. But actually, the starting point and the destination were different in the two cases. Mm. Um, so so, so it wouldn't, it's not surprising if the Stoics and the Christians would come over some of the same track. You see that at the end of the second century. Tertullian um, uh, can quote Stoics and can see Seneca as, uh, he says, Saipe Nostos. Seneca's often on our side. Um, and of course, it depends who you're against. If you're up against um, uh, rampant, violent paganism, then Seneca's pretty, a pretty good ally, actually. Um, and he'd certainly be a good ally against Epicureanism, which they would both dislike. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. But certainly, this, to this extent, it's, it's worth thinking about that if somebody were to say, uh, if, if some margin were to fly to earth and say, I want to study St. Paul, which university department would I go to? Um, we would all probably say, well, go to the religion department. And, and I think Paul would be hugely frustrated. I think he would prefer them to go to either the philosophy department or the politics department, um, because what he's doing is founding new communities based on a thought out way of life. That's much more like a combination of ancient philosophy and ancient politics than mm-hmm. it's like ancient religion. And so we, we need to rattle the cages of our categories a bit and start to think differently. And so, you know, questions like yours helps us do that, even if we then want to push further. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, <laughs> I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about Paul, early Christianity, the New Testament, or whatever else as we head for the door? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure if you asked Paul that question, he would say, for goodness sake, the last word must be Jesus. And this is not just a pious gesture. It's because wherever you start with Paul, whichever question you come to, it goes pretty quickly back, two or three steps, and you're back with Jesus. Because it's Jesus, crucifixion, and resurrection, which for Paul is the fulcrum of history. And, you know, here's the thing. I just heard that today, this very day, Steven Pinker, the Harvard 
um, is he a philosopher? I'm not sure, has just published a book called Enlightenment Now, arguing that actually the Enlightenment is, has worked and it is working, and we've got to stop being mealy-mouthed about it, and let's not have any of this silly postmodernism, and we've just got to let Enlightenment progress take us forward. And what I want to say is that Paul would say, excuse me, the Enlightenment is offering at best a parody of the truth. World history turned its corner when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, not when Voltaire and Rousseau and Thomas Jefferson wrote and said what they wrote and said. Um, and so somehow we have to think what, uh, like what Pope Benedict said 10 years ago, that the, the, the Enlightenment, particularly its stress on human rights, um, every good thing there was actually borrowed from or parodying uh, the truth of Christianity. But if you, can, if you expect you can carry on with the Enlightenment purely on a secular basis, cutting off the Christian roots, what you will see is a bunch of special interest fanatics, each claiming their own rights and each yelling at each other. And I'm afraid that's where we're going right now. And I haven't read Thinker's book. It's only published today. I heard about it just two days ago and read a little bit about, about it. Um, but I think Paul's message is absolutely spot on. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum of world history. That's hard to figure out what that's going to mean, but unless we're prepared to try, then we are simply going to capitulate to the great ideologies of our time. Tom Wright, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Very good to be with you, as always. Talk Listen, to you again one day. Yes, listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying... Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.